you got problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah. you don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it you're a freak with a dark shameful secret but you're not the only one get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun now your healing has begun it's bad with money with gabby done what up guys it's gabby done the person who once asked on this very podcast what is the stock I asked that to a real person. And fun fact, I still don't really know the answer. So I don't know if you guys noticed, but the stock market is booming right now. Yeah, that's a thing. I've definitely noticed it. No, I haven't. I think that's great, right? I mean, that's the impression I get from the news anyway. A day for the history books. The stock market on a rocket ride, blasting through a ceiling and closing at an all-time high. This weekend will mark a full year since President Trump was inaugurated. It has been a week of good economic news, which he touted today, including the Dow Jones Industrial Average, quickly cracking the 26,000 mark. We've got an economy that's firing on all cylinders, uh, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, Interest rates are still low. And now we've got this tax reform, which can further boost corporate profits. Ah, there it is. Did you catch that right there at the end? That bit about high corporate profits? Yeah, so key thing about those high corporate profits, they're great for the corporations. But most of us, last time I checked, aren't corporations. So when you hear those breathless reports about record growth in the market, there's a few reasons to be skeptical. For one thing, just because corporate revenues are up, it doesn't mean those companies are suddenly rewarding their employees with raises. In fact, while the Dow Jones shot up 25% last year, Wage growth has only gone up at one-tenth of that rate, 2.5%. So whatever money is flowing in from these record highs in the stock market isn't necessarily finding its way home with the employees who work for the companies being traded. The whole reason for the massive stock market spike is that people are buying more stocks. But according to NBC News, only half of all American households own stock. So that means the other half is stuck watching the news and wondering when all this excitement is going to mean something for them. Or should I say, us. Because like I told you at the top, the stock market and all the seesawing of euphoria and panic that goes along with it, it mostly feels like a foreign language to me. And I'm guessing since you're listening to a show called Bad With Money, you might feel the same way. And here's what's crazy. Almost anyone can buy stocks from the stock market. There's nothing stopping most of us from joining this gold rush we keep hearing about. It's just that it feels like something that's only for a certain class or type of person. So today on the show, we're going to challenge the idea that the stock market is a mysterious and unknowable economic force that you're at the mercy of. We're going to talk about making it work for you. It's time for a revolution in our thinking about market-driven capitalism, a.k.a. here we go again, guys. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you own stocks, it's entirely possible that in the time it took for you to listen to that ad, you could have made a few thousand dollars. Guys, that's real. I just learned all about it from my first guest, Amber Jameson. Amber's a reporter at BuzzFeed, but recently she started moonlighting as a renegade stock maven. And she's chronicling her journey with a newsletter called Better Have My Money. I kept texting my boyfriend updates about Netflix stock and how much it had gone up or down in the last day. And he was like, I feel like you should start a newsletter to tell people about these things. 
what what was your perception of the stock market prior to this? Like, what? Why were you interested in Netflix's stock? Well. The thing that really kind of got me first interested in stocks is some of my friends in Australia bought medical marijuana stocks that have grown 350% in the last year and a bit. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, you've tripled your money on pot in like a year. Like this seems crazy and hadn't even thought that I could buy stocks. I didn't. I just sort of assumed people who owned and sold stocks with just like a bunch of white men on Wall Street and didn't really think that that was a thing that normal people could even do. Uh, And so I was trying to figure out different ways of like, oh, I have some money in a savings account. And then it was like, well, maybe I could use some of that money and start investing it. And then that kind of got me into like, what are the fun things I would want to invest money in? Yeah. So go talk a little bit more about why it feels so inaccessible to people. Well, I think the main thing is really that there's not super clear education about it. I didn't certainly didn't get anything in school about how you buy or sell stocks or how the stock market even works. I didn't realize um, until I read a book that was um, a huge seller in Australia called The Barefoot Investor, which is really all about like just how to get your money together. And in that, it had a thing talking about how the stock market, despite every world war and recession and moment in history, has just grown steadily. And that's the market. That's not like every business, obviously. But the idea being that if you had just invested into this thing, it just grows and grows, no matter if it goes down, no matter if there's dips, no matter if things happen, you know, companies can collapse. But realistically, if you follow the market, you just earn a bunch more money. So last year, I kind of realized that, you know, the stocks market had grown about 20%, while I had savings in a bank account that grew 1%. And I just thought, I'm like being kept poor, essentially. There is not enough education about how you can grow your money. And therefore, I sort of felt like there was this whole world that was kind of kept secret unless you knew all these terms like dividends or the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, like all of these things that I didn't understand what those terms meant. And no one had ever clearly explained them. So did you make any rules for yourself as you began exploring the process of buying stocks? Like, were you like, Let's not go overboard. (laughs) Or were you like, let's do whatever we want? Um, So, yeah, my rules were only by things that I understood, which apparently is like a golden rule of investing. But like I didn't want some sort of like biotech medical thing that I don't understand. So I only buy things that I get and things that I either use or know people who use and like think that there is potential in them. Um, And in terms of like how much money, it sort of started, I was like, I'll start with 2000. I'll then, and then it got so exciting that I just kind of would, I'm trying not to like take money out of my savings account, but it's actually made me buy less crap because instead I'm like, oh, rather than like, you know, having a $50 dinner out, I'm like, I could just slip that over to my uh, stocks account and buy a couple of uh, weed stocks for 50 bucks, which so far are literally just like dropped so far. I've lost 25% of my money, but they will surely grow again. And then I will have become sort of, you know, secretly rich. Well, I mean, isn't it, do you ever feel like, because it is just gambling. I mean, and I know the whole thing is like, just don't do it with money you don't have, but do you ever feel like, oh man, this is, this is my money. (laughs) I do get really sad when it drops. Like I, 
at first I told myself, like, I won't check it every day. Like, obviously, you, I don't intend to sell things. Like, I intend to keep them for a couple of years and have long-term growth. So, like, why check them multiple times a day? Um, but I find it really addictive. But that to me is sort of what the fun side is. Like, I didn't think stocks would be fun. I thought it would just be like, I am a serious investor and I have purchased some stocks now and I will wait for them to grow. And instead it's like, oh, well, like this is down. Maybe I should like sell a couple of these. And like I had UPS stocks and I'm like, these are going nowhere. I'm getting rid of these. And I'm going to like trade them in for some Netflix stocks. Um, I mean, jokes on me, the UPS stocks then like jumped a bunch, but whatever, that's fine. So like it's a game. It is. And also I'm aware that like what I'm doing, which is buying individual companies, that is the worst way to play the stock market. Like Everything shows you that that is not the way that you will make money at all. The way you make money on the stock market is that you just put money in these ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and they just grow slowly. And that's like the logical way to do it uh, for long-term growth. But that's not very fun. So I'm okay with losing some of this because it might go crazy. Like if you just buy those funds you're never going to like suddenly become like an Amazon, you know, multimillionaire. So now I like to think of these of my like, this is my possibly going to get crazy rich money. I have my retirement funds and my 401k that will like very slowly increase, not a lot. These are my like, maybe I can make it big. Yeah, I mean, that's it's just like a game or something, but it has real world I don't know, consequences, but then they could be good consequences. Well, I don't know. It's so scary. Well, and you can also then like kind of make like some ethical choices like based around it. You know, like, for example, I mean, there's lots of different types of funds and so forth. But, you know, I don't want to invest in gun companies. I, you know, try to I'm trying to like and I'm actually struggling to like find good options, but like have pick companies that have like strong women leaders or like very diverse leadership groups. Um, you can kind of just have a bit more control. Like I like watching now, like, mm, how much does this CEO earn? And like, are they really deserving of it? Is there a feminist angle to this for you? Oh, I definitely think that it is women in particular who are kept out of this conversation. Uh, and also just people who are not from traditionally wealthy backgrounds or from backgrounds where this is like a normal common part of life. I think it's a very different situation if your family or your parents or your older brother or something, you know, like work as an investment banker and understand these sorts of things. So really it's for me, it's about people who are maybe from more creative industries, maybe don't have a huge amount of uh, savings. I sort of thought because I can't afford a house, then I can't really have an investment. Uh, and instead, it's having stocks has made me realize that I, I don't need a house to be able to have money that increases. Um, so, it, yeah, it's partly for women, but also just for like people who didn't grow up with a bunch of cash. Yeah. I mean, I guess any sort of non uh, what you would think of in terms of who's investing type person. Yeah, <laughs> it's good for. I mean, that's the, the angle on this show, too. Right. Like talking about money to any sort of marginalized person or any sort of low low income or low wealth person, you know? That's the thing. My go-to was always like, rich people are bad. They're inherently evil. They must, like, they cannot be trusted. And being able to kind of like take that narrative back a bit and be able to be like, actually, I can invest in things that I care about and I can share that knowledge with others um, just feels like a way more kind of positive way to look at the market that gives me some ownership rather than it just being something that like other people get to get rich off. 
and I understand like people will say, say to me like, oh, I can't possibly do it. Like I don't have like any extra money. And I'm kind of like, well, like if we didn't have this like expensive dinner out right now, you could have just bought like 10 stocks. So like it's not as completely over the top expensive as you might think it is. And that's also what I'm trying to like talk to people about and like have people understand is that, you know, it, it costs about $1,500 for one Amazon stock, but like you can buy like Groupon for $4.50. Like it doesn't have to be this kind of over the top expensive thing. And I think once people realize that, then it becomes like part of a less intimidating. It's not just like I have a stock portfolio, but it's like, oh yeah, I'm like just trying to like invest my cash on the side in the same way people, you know, like have a little savings account. Yeah, that's the I think that's the thing of if you get a little bit of money, you're kind of like torn on what you're supposed to do with it. And I think people are worried that they're going to put it in the stock market and then something will happen. Stock market will crash or something else will happen. And you'll just be like, oh, no, I like it's like, you know, you put your money in a slot machine or something. Totally. So you definitely need to be able to like ride it out. And right now, all of the news is like this might be the end of the like stock market growth. Like this might be the end. It's all about to go downhill. Like these are the final moments. 2017 was a huge year and now everything is going to crash. And I'm like, oh, but I just I just started in February. Um, but because I don't want to really, I'm thinking of this as like kind of a three to five year project before I would sell. I mean, that may change depending on like an individual business or my own circumstance. Um, but therefore, it also makes it a little bit easier because I just think like even when things are down, I'm like, it's OK. I've got like five years for it to go up again. So how do you square your stock market participation with like possibly giving money to evil companies? When I first launched it, a friend of mine was like, I'm pretty sure young people are supposed to destroy capitalism, not start a newsletter about it. But OK, um, I Yes, there are companies like Facebook and Twitter are ones that I just think like mm, I either you're stealing my data or you're like verifying white nationalists. I don't know if you need my money. Um, I also get quite frustrated when I like realize how much like I realize the like CEO of iRobot uh, like earns five point seven million dollars. And I'm like, mm, you have like a thousand employees. I just don't know if that's worth five point seven million dollars. And and my shares are down. So like. I'm not impressed in every way. Uh, so I definitely, it feels weird to be really kind of partaking in that kind of capitalist greed uh, market part of society, which I'd previously not had anything to do with and thought was only pure evil. And so, yeah, I do think, I'm trying to think of with other company decisions, like, yeah, any terms of like things of energy, uh, I'm not interested in investing in guns. I'm not interested in Anything like super big pharma or health insurance, I just think like, mm. I mean, I was, like you mentioned this in your episode the other week where it was like, this, they, they don't care about like looking after people. It's about making more money. Um, so, yeah. And I, I definitely think there is a bunch of companies that you can be like, actually, I don't agree with any of the values or the product that you put together. Like things like, I think, I feel like it's all the obvious ones for anyone who is like, you know, a, a little engaged on those issues. It's very clear when you're like, I'm not going to give my money to a petrol company, thanks. Or like some sort of military weapons company. I'm just, that's that's not what I'm going to put my $200 in. And how dare you try to like think that you could have it. Y'all, listen to Amber. These stocks are just out there for you to buy. There's literally nothing stopping you from putting some money into the market and reaping the benefits when there's a big surge and people start hyperventilating on the news. But 
maybe before you do that, think about what we were discussing at the end of the interview about the toxic elements of playing the markets. Because even if Amber's doing a good job of self-policing, taking care not to buy shares of companies that profit from violence or sexism, most people aren't thinking about those things. Like at all. Because we're also drunk on this lie that steamrolling growth is a universal good, that we never take a deep breath, drink a glass of water, and reflect on how we built the steamroller. Which is exactly what we're going to do right after the break. Welcome back to Bad With Money. Ready for that tall glass of chill the fuck out I was alluding to earlier? My next guest is Julie Mathai, a radical economist at Wellesley College who's had enough of the assumption that uninhibited market growth is an inherently good thing. In fact, she says it's a byproduct of a capitalist economic system that's lost its bearings. We have, in a way, overproduction. We have all these people wanting to work, and we have these firms that want to make more things, but people aren't buying. But the reason people aren't buying isn't because they're not consuming. They don't want to consume. I mean, they've been brainwashed with all kinds of advertisements and they, they want all these things. But the income distribution is so unequal that people are mostly in debt. The average person's way in debt. And we just got this huge tax act, you know, this terrible tax bill passed where small amounts of givebacks to the lower income people and these huge tax bonuses for the very wealthy, that they're going to just put that in the bank or speculate with it. They're not going to buy, you know, a car with it. So we have a problem with the distribution of income. Before the break, I referred to the stock market as a steamroller. Another way to think about it is it's like the leveler from the movie Fern Gully. If you haven't seen that movie, here's what I mean. The leveler is this giant machine that cuts down trees in the rainforest. Hey, don't. You, you think the leveler can handle this baby? And the two guys who drive it don't have any regard or understanding for what they're doing or the effect it's having. So I love to eat everything. Kind of like you. They're too busy eating sandwiches and chocolate cake. So bear with me here. That's basically what's happening with American capitalism. There's this system called the stock market, a.k.a. the leveler, that's wreaking havoc on the entire country because the people driving it are just doing what's expected of them without thinking about the consequences. Capitalism, which is our economy, it has this idea of equality in it. But it's also very unequal. So it's a hybrid between inequality and solidarity. And it has, because it was founded with this idea of equal rights in the marketplace um, as versus, you know, aristocratic privilege. So it started with equal rights for white men who had property. And then the feminist movement and the anti-racist movement and the workers movement all challenged that and have been expanding the notion of equality and realizing that we really can't get equality within capitalism because it is based on class inequality. Because of the private ownership of production of resources and the hiring of workers, there's a deep inequality right, built right into the basis of the capitalist economy. But Julie says it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be like Fern Gully. When you look out of the economy, especially if you've ever taken an economics course or just from our culture, you assume, for example, that all firms just care about profit. All businesses are just profit motivated. And that's not true. The profit motivated ones are the ones on the top of the iceberg that are above the waterline and that people see. But there's a lot of socially responsible firms. There's firms that are owned by workers. There are firms that do good. And there's a whole area called social entrepreneurship, social enterprises, that people literally starting businesses and they're for-profit businesses, but their goal is to do a contribute to society as a whole.
So maybe we should think more about these socially minded firms when we're thinking about who to support in this crazy capitalist system. But how do I make sure I'm not accidentally supporting something evil, you ask? My next guest is going to tell you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Bad With Money, where we're about to meet a woman who's using the stock market as a weapon against the wealth disparities it's historically contributed to. Her name is Morgan Simon. She's at the forefront of a movement called Impact Investing. In fact, she just published a book about it called Real Impact. Impact investment is it's the trillion dollar trend that most people have never heard of. Um, And at the same time, even J.P. Morgan is saying there's going to be a trillion dollars invested for social impact over the next decade. That's an incredible opportunity, but it means that we have to get it right. You know, we have to make sure that that impact is real, that we're actually going to be helping people at the end of the day. Um, Part of why it's so exciting, right, compared to philanthropy is that philanthropy is always a tiny drop in the bucket. Yeah, what's the difference between philanthropy and 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 impact investing. Sure. So philanthropy is when you give away money for social change. So you could say philanthropy always has a negative 100% return, right? You never get any of that money back. And I think that philanthropy is really well suited for two things, um, for organizing and advocacy and and politics. So make that three, but who's counting? Um, And On the other hand, when you think about long-term systemic change, right, that we want to get more renewable energy into the economy, we want to solve inequality, charity is never going to be enough. And that's where investing, right, which is where the majority of the world's economic activity happens, right, 196 trillion that circulates the economy every day, that's where if we say let's manage that money in a way that supports a more social and environmentally positive future, right, that's where you can really kind of make a much bigger dent in social change than just philanthropy. Okay. So, um, I have some examples of, of initiatives that you undertake or that impact investors undertake. Um, sure. The list I have says engaging with colleges and universities to divest their endowments from companies with negative social benefit. Can you explain that a little bit uh, and like your story about your experience with this at Lockheed Martin? Sure. So I think there's, there's two ways in general to think about Um, impact investment, right? So one is the money that you personally have control over. And that might be as simple as, you know, the question of where does your money spend the night, right? And if you don't know, then it's probably off doing things that you're not going to be very excited about. Um, And, you know, financing things like whether it's mines in South Africa that are terrible to their workers or firearms or, you know, any number of things, right? Or you could walk your money over to a bank like New Resource Bank, where you know that it's supporting renewable energy and local business. Um, So that's one piece of where is your money spending the night. And then the second piece is where is money in society kind of collectively spending the night. And I think for a lot of us who are not wealthy, we kind of assume, oh, well, that's just, you know, investing is just for rich people. I really can't influence that. Except I'd say that we're all accidental billionaires one way or another, right? So if you went to a college or university that has a billion dollar endowment, they're accountable to you and the rest of the students and alumni and faculty to manage that in a way that's aligned with the values of the institution. And that's where being able to be an advocate with those institutions of even asking the question, hey, where is that money invested? And is it in a way that I can be really proud of? Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't even know. They have no idea where where it's, anything is getting invested. So even recently, I, I hate to say, you know, the Florida Teachers Pension Fund 
had 500,000 invested in American Standard, which is the arms manufacturer that produced the AR-15 that was used in the in the school massacre, right? I'm from Florida, um, so that checks out entirely. <laughs> but I think most teachers would not have known that, right? And I think it's that once you start to hear um, that essentially you're investing in your own demise, I hate to say in that case very literally, um, that people start to say, well, what else could we do? And that's two things, right? That's encouraging institutions to invest in things we can be really proud of, right, whether that's renewable energy or worker co-ops and and quality jobs. The other that you mentioned, like with Lockheed Martin, when you are a shareholder in a company, you can use that power to influence what they do. Um, So back when I was a 19-year-old sophomore at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, um, Swarthmore had a billion-dollar endowment. And I sort of said to myself, I'm going to be a billionaire for the next four years. Let me figure out how to leverage that for social change. And we got Lockheed Martin to start giving domestic partner benefits and put sexual orientation in their non-discrimination clause by writing them saying not just, hey, I'm a scrappy college student who cares about this, but I represent a billion dollars and I'm concerned about what you're doing, right? It's a very different type of power as an activist. Oh, to say I'm a, I'm a student at a school where you get money from. Exactly. Oh. And there is an organization called the Responsible Endowments Coalition that helps students at universities learn how they can use these forms of activism to support their cause. Yeah, like you said, you would think that you're just like some student, but you actually represent money that keeps this company on its feet. Right. So the same way if you're a teacher and you participate in the retirement fund, if you're a city worker, if you're in any number, even if you just have a 401k, Mm -hmm. right, at a major financial institution or where you bank, we're all accidental billionaires one way or another. But we often just sort of turn over that power to other people rather than saying, hey, here's my values. Here's how I want it reflected. Wow. This is not something I would have ever looked into or thought about. But I guess um, that's why you wrote a book. Uh, (laughs) um, And I think they don't want you to think about it, right? So, and, And particularly for women, there's the challenge when you go to a financial advisor of sort of being told, this is complicated, just let me take care of it. And that's where kind of asserting your authority, right, of remembering this is your money at the end of the day, and it needs to reflect your values, right? You're the one who's going to have to look at your grandchildren and say, I made this money to support you and go to college and whatever your dreams are, but I did it in a way that really supported people on the planet, and I can be proud of that as part of my legacy. Yeah. So, I mean, who's the they that doesn't want you to know about it? Well, there's certainly... um, an embedded financial community. Sometimes the the joke in finance, no one gets fired for buying General Electric, right? That if you just do the same thing as everybody else, um, then when there's a market crash and you lose, you know, a teacher's retirement, you can just say, oh, well, that's the market. It's not my fault, right? And people are terrified that if they do something a little bit different, um, then they're going to get blamed for that. And they might have to go up this learning curve, right? So I think a lot of um, particularly uh, next generation investors um, are saying to their advisors, you can go on this learning journey with me or I can find a new advisor. Um, And we're starting to see like the first affirmative financial network. There's lots of places you can go for advisors who specifically focus on social and environmental work. Can you talk about the difference between a one-time donation versus like a long-term sustainable gift? Or investment? Yeah, yeah, investment. Um, Yeah, so I think, you know, for example, globally, uh, 
I'm, I'm going to say there's a lot of them. I don't know how many million um, of cacao farmers that are making less than $2 a day. And let's say that I was interested in getting those people out of poverty. Now, I can't just walk around and hand them all money, right? That's definitely not sustainable for the long run. Yeah. What I can do is to think about what's a way that through a business I can make sure that they're getting a much larger proportion of the value in a chocolate bar. So the fair trade system, right, was designed to try to help correct that. But in the case of cacao, it does provide more price stability, but the farmer is often only getting about two cents more a kilo, right? That's not going to get you very far. And there's a company called Uncommon Cacao where they work with cacao farmers where they make sure the farmer gets at least 51% of the value of any transaction. And that means that many of their farmers have tripled their income. So I would have to walk around giving away millions and millions of dollars, right, to get those cacao farmers to triple their income. Or I can make sure to buy their cacao at a better price through a sustainable business, which isn't going to require that much capital to get going, right? So that's the type of investment that can really shift an entire industry um, and have incredible outcomes for millions of people um, in a way that's much more effective than just giving a donation. Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of people are just like, well, it's easier if I just throw money at this thing and also maybe I'll get like a tax exemption versus people just don't want to do any research. (laughs) But I think about, you know, as consumers, right, Um, when you go and buy eggs, do you ever flip out in the egg aisle? In what sense? Like this one's cage free. This one's organic. They're brown. Oh, there's too many different types for sure. Too many different types. And that you're kind of making this choice, right? You probably don't buy the 99 cent, you know, looks like it fell off the back of the truck eggs unless you really have to, right? Sometimes we have those weeks. You probably don't buy the $12 pasture raised, but you might buy something a little bit in the middle, right? Because you feel like it's going to be healthier for you. You picture the chickens running around. Yeah. You're so much happier, right? So I think as consumers, we're used to the idea of you make choices based on a variety of different factors. It's not just cost, but it's also what's the impact on the world. So it's sort of, you know, choose your investments like you choose your eggs. That a little bit of education is enough to be able to make a choice that then you're going to feel really good about. Is it a particularly ripe moment for people caring about this kind of thing? Definitely. I think as you've seen, you know, companies like Tom's Shoes and otherwise, right, of of consumers really caring about the social impact of what they do, that that translates over into how their money is managed or where their money spends the night at the bank, right? That it starts to feel incongruous if you're making all these social choices on one hand, whereas your money is doing the exact opposite, right? So I think sometimes we call that, in in, in the book, we call it the ick factor, right? It just feels kind of icky. And it doesn't take that long to find alternative options. Um, So for instance, there's community banks all over the country where you're able to get the same bells and whistles that you would from a normal bank account, but feel really good about where your money spent the night. Yeah. I mean, uh, in terms of investment, Like a lot of times people who listen to this show say, well, investing is for people who like already have a ton of assets. Mm -hmm. Like they, I think they would see it as like, well, I have an extra $5. I want to give that $5 to the LGBT center. I don't, you know, but how, how do you, 
Like, is there a way to tell well, someone great, like that? You do know? that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think it goes back to you get to do it all, right? And that's the nice thing. I think how I was saying before, philanthropy has a negative one hundred percent return. With investments, you get to keep the money, right? So the idea that you could have social change and keep your money is pretty great, right? So I think that's where even if it's as simple as looking at where you bank, um, and then knowing over time if you do start investing in stocks and bonds, you know, asking if there's a social choice option, asking if a fund is doing shareholder advocacy, right, which is the term for influencing companies like Hobby Lobby, um, to see if you can really maximize that benefit. And then, you know, use those investment dollars to give those uh, that donation to the LGBT center. How do people respond when you talk about this stuff? Like, how radical is this kind of idea? Like, is it one of those? Because a lot of times on this show, we'll talk about um, you know, like, oh, this would really be so great if every person uh, had empathy. But unfortunately, you know what I mean? But like, unfortunately, uh, everyone sucks. Well, so here's the good news that increasingly investment companies and, and also, you know, some of the wealthiest families in the country, right? So if you look at the historic, like the Rockefellers and um, the Pritzker family, who I work with, um, that are really um, starting to see the synergies between how social responsibility can really improve corporate outcomes. Um, so even if people didn't care at all about social and environmental values, for instance, um, an insurer like Swiss Re will now not insure any company that doesn't have a plan for climate change because it's just too risky. Um, and there's been study after study proving that if you pay workers well, they perform better, right, and they're ultimately increasing shareholder value. So, you know, I certainly talk about it in terms of social change because that's what I'm most passionate about. But your most greedy listener will also really benefit uh, by looking at the environmental and social uh, outcomes of, of investing. You also wrote about the deficiency in the entrepreneurial community around social education. So what kind of stuff do you think is missing there? Sure. So I think even as I, you know, say it's easy as checking the social choice box, we still have to be conscious consumers of impact investment. And to, to tell a, a small story from the book, um, there was a wind energy project in the south of Mexico, which on the surface sounds great, right? Wind energy in an indigenous community, you can create so many jobs, you help lessen Mexico's oil uh, dependency. Sounded really nice, right? And investors were projected to make really great returns. Um, it sounded really great to everyone except the people who lived there who were getting offered the tiniest amounts for their land and started putting up these roadblocks and putting out statements like stop the intimidation, hostility, and violence caused not by oil, not by gas, right, but wind energy. And I think that's where, as investors, if we just sit on the 40th floor on a Wall Street high-rise and say, oh, this looks like it's social, without really taking the time to build with affected communities, we're going to wind up making a lot of mistakes. So that's where I think as we're scaling impact investment, we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that the impact is real. So what ended up happening with the uh, with the windmills? So in that case, they actually did stop the project. Um, and I know that sounds like a success story, um, except that we didn't get the wind energy and you did lose out on that opportunity. Um, what has been happening, though, the local community came together and said, we get it. It's not wind. It's the fact that people are trying to take our land. 
And what if we could create our own wind farm and get the majority of the economic benefit? Um, what does that take? About $50 million, right? Not, not an easy thing to pull together. So that's a project that's still in process. Um, but it really gives an idea of how could you do this differently, right? You could partner with the community, still make a return as an investment, but make sure that everybody gets to profit as part of it. Are you one of the only, like, is it a lot of women and other marginalized people involved in, in impact investing and promoting impact investing? And are you guys mostly just trying to get through to like an elite that's kind of been there forever? So there's a real mix. And I think that's part of what's exciting. I mean, investment is obviously traditionally a very um, male and white dominated field. Um, you know, Candide Group, my firm is a registered investment advisor. Less than 1% of those are owned by women or people of color. Um, so from that perspective, we are quite rare. Um, that said, you are seeing a lot of leadership from communities of color, both as investors and entrepreneurs, who are saying we want businesses that are going to serve our communities while also generating wealth for people of color. And I think that's been one of the really exciting trends that we've seen um, and that you really do have a large number of actors who are part of this. So even uh, just within Transform Finance, right, which is the nonprofit that I co-founded and, and still very much support, their investor network is over $2 billion strong of investors who come together saying we care about social justice, we want to do our part. And and we continue to see that community of people grow. So if anyone listening is considering investing or, you know, wanting to put their money somewhere for the first time, where should they start? What are I mean, obviously, they should get your book. And then what after that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and in the book, um, there's a chapter that is um, Four Steps to an Ick-Free Life, um, which walks you through the different investment options that are out there for everyday people. Um, but certainly where you bank being the first easiest choice to make and where you're, you know, can feel pretty confident that you're not going to be giving up any financial return. And then there's now a number of online platforms um, that can help you put money into stocks in a way that's social or environmentally friendly as well. Yeah. I mean, we have the most information, like we have access to the most information we could possibly have access to right now. So figure it out. Absolutely. <laughs> figure it out, but that it's really not that hard. You know, I think it goes back to those uh, four steps to an ick-free life. Each of them are 20 minutes or less. Um, and I would posit, I've, I have occasionally spent at least that much time in the egg aisle, um, <laughs> Googling what's the cage-free versus the pasture-raised again. You know, I think over time we figure this out as consumers, and it's that we get to be savvy consumers of how we invest as well. Look, friends, I know we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and I don't want to give you the impression that the stock market is the same thing as the economy. It's just a really important part of how the economy functions. But the biggest takeaway for me from this week's show is that there's nothing stopping us from getting in there and helping rewire the engine that powers so much of our financial culture. Whether it's by taking small targeted steps like Amber's suggesting or reflecting on Morgan's advice and figuring out your points of connection to massive sums of money that are already in the market, the stock market isn't a distant, inaccessible monster that controls your life. In fact, Morgan believes it's the key to the kind of future we all want for ourselves. So I think any time that we invest, it's that we're thinking about the future, right, which is that we want to be able to send a child to college or retire or have some vision in the future, right, of something that money is going to enable us to do. And I think the idea of impact investing is to say, 
I want to do those things. And I want to make sure that I supported the community around me in the process. And I made sure that the environment was there for the next generation to enjoy. So it's really thinking much more broadly about the idea of legacy and, and the future, right? And the way that money builds a future state. How do we make that as desirable as possible? So guys, go. Go do it. Get involved. Make the stock market work for you. If you can invest, invest according to your values. And let's help build the world we want to live in out of the super expensive blocks we already have to play with. Get an app. Get investing. But maybe read Amber's newsletter first. It's called Better Have My Money. Yeah, do that first. And then do something. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. It makes a difference. Please do it. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Share the episode. Send it to your mom. Send it to your dad. Send it to your friends. It's a really shady way to let them know that they are bad with money. Also, tell your friends who hear the word portfolio and their first thought isn't a big folder full of paintings. We are part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell and Sam Dingman and Cameron Drews, and we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Special thanks this week to AC Valdez. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. As always, I am Gabby Dunn, and it is my honor to see you next week.